Hello everyone, this is Pastor Casey again for the second of our Sermon Talkback podcasts this week. Uh, We got four different questions this week, and so it seemed right to me to split it up into two so that we could give each of these uh, some of the attention that they are due. And so if you missed the first of our Sermon Talkback podcast this week, that should be available on whatever podcasting platform you are listening to this one on. Just look back above or below this one on the list and you should see it. Uh, A couple of good questions that were given that we addressed in that first podcast, and we have two more questions in this one. Of course, our sermon this last Sunday was on Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, in which Luke introduces and dedicates his gospel And we kind of use this as well as an overview of the Gospels in general and of the Gospel of Luke in particular. Uh, But one of the things that Luke said in Luke 1, 1 through 4, was that he wanted the readers of his Gospel to have certainty about the things that he was teaching and that they had been taught. And he is referring to certainty about Jesus And that's one of our main goals for preaching through Luke, is that we can grow in knowing who Jesus is, the real, true, and biblical Jesus, as he's presented in the New Testament. And so as part of my sermon, I included a a favorite quote of mine, and one that I included in the sermon, and I put it in the bulletin as well. And this was a quote from a book called Christianity and Liberalism. It's a hundred-year-old book. It was published in 1923 by a man named J. Gresham Machen. And Machen had been, uh, he was a Presbyterian Bible scholar. He had been affiliated with Princeton Seminary. And when he started to see uh, this 20th century liberalism infiltrating the school, he became very concerned and how this was coming into the church. And what I mean by a 20th century theological liberalism, uh, in the early 20th century, this was an effort that uh, uh, tried to cut away at some of the orthodox views of Scripture, of God, of Christ. It really denied any of the miracles. It denied, uh, you know, an inspired or inerrant scripture and all of that sort of stuff. And so Machen was one of the key voices in speaking out against this rising tide in the early 20th century. He ended up leaving Princeton Seminary and starting Westminster Seminary, which still operates in Philadelphia to this day. And he wrote this book, Christianity and Liberalism, in 1923 to explain how when you strip away all that is essential to Christianity, when you strip away uh, the truth of Scripture, when you strip away the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the virgin birth of Jesus and all these things, you actually end up with a different religion. And so he's saying that this liberal Christianity, although it calls itself Christianity, and talks about Jesus is, in fact, a different religion. And so I love this book. It's a great book. You can read it. And as I said on Sunday, it often reads as if it had been published uh, just this year. It's so relevant to what we continue to hear about Jesus and about the scriptures. But from that book, I included a quote, one of my favorite quotes, where Machen says this. He says, The Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern Reconstruction. He is real. He is not a manufactured figure suitable as a point of support for ethical maxims, but a genuine person whom a man can love. Men have loved him through all the Christian centuries. 
And the strange thing is that despite all the efforts to remove him from the pages of history, there are those who love him still. So Machen said the advantage of the Jesus of the New Testament over the Jesus of what the modern scholars of his day were trying to present, he said the main advantage is that the Jesus of the New Testament is real and he's a person that you can love and know. And so our first question today relates to this quote. The question said, thinking of that Machen quote about the Jesus of the New Testament having one advantage, and etc., says, can you speak to how adoration and love for Jesus Christ differs from a love and trust in, quote-unquote, the universe, as some might say in the 21st century? And so this is an insightful question. Uh, Machen was talking about how people in his day were reconstructing Jesus to be quite different from the Jesus of the New Testament. And that certainly still happens in our day, but we also see a lot of just tossing out the idea of God and Jesus and replacing it with something else. And what that something often ends up being in the 20th century, in our day and age, is this language about the universe. And perhaps you have heard people say this, the universe is guiding me in this certain way, or the universe is speaking to me in a certain way, or we just have to trust in the universe. And so it's a common thing. And what I think this is in our culture, in our day and age, is as God starts to fade out of public consciousness as, you know, the kind of general theistic, uh, you know, Christianity in a broad sense is less and less the civil religion of our day and age, and more and more people move to to no religion at all as the default option. Uh, we'll find things that will creep in as substitutes for God, and one of the key substitutes in our day and age is the universe. And I think that this is often helpful to people. If you look at uh, if you look at things like Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Narcotics Anonymous, Gamblers Anonymous, these recovery groups, you'll see one of the key principles in these recovery groups is people seek to be freed from uh, addictions and life besetting things like that. One of their key principles is having a higher power, something outside of yourself. And in the program, they're not particular about which higher power it may be. It could be God, it could be Jesus, it could be the universe, it could be something else of your deciding. The purpose in those programs is to have a higher power. And I think what they what they have realized in putting those programs together is that it is an emotionally and psychologically helpful thing for people to recognize that there is something greater than themselves. And so I think when people speak of the universe, they're often kind of tapping into this, that we know as people, we're hardwired to know the truth about God, but we suppress that truth and then we end up replacing it with other things because we still know that we need something greater than ourselves. Uh, And we are... We're impressed by majesty. We are impressed by grandeur. We are drawn to it. Uh, I think it was John Piper who had often said, nobody goes to the Grand Canyon to increase their self-esteem. We want to look at things and see things and trust in things that are greater than ourselves. And so when people are speaking of the universe, that I think is what they are tapping into, is this idea that there is obviously something greater than ourselves. It's good for us to trust in something greater 
than ourselves. But our question today asks, uh, how does loving and trusting in Jesus Christ differ from loving and trusting in the universe? And so, as in Machen's quote, where he said, the Jesus of the New Testament has at least one advantage over the Jesus of modern construction in that he is real. I'm going to tap into that and say, uh, I jotted down a few things here, that the Jesus of the New Testament has, in my mind, at least four advantages over and against uh, the universe as we speak of it today. And the first one is that creator and created distinction, that Jesus is the creator while the universe is a created thing. And it's only human to replace uh, the creator with created things. You see this, of course, in Romans 1, and Paul talks about how different people of different religions through the years have exchanged the glory of God for images of men and birds and animals and that sort of thing. And in Romans one twenty five, having talked about how God gave them up to their own desires, he says it's because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's the distinction there. Uh, that It's through Christ that all things were created, all of the universe. It's Christ who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so Christ is better than the universe in that sense because he's the creator of the universe. It's like going to any other created thing, whether that's worshiping a person or an animal or a tree or something like that. We say we shouldn't do that because we should worship the creator rather than that which is created. And although the universe is bigger than all of those things and seems much more majestic and grand than all those things, the universe is itself still a created thing, a creature in that sense. And so we ought to worship the creator over that which is created. So that's the first advantage of Jesus over the universe is that he is the creator versus that which is created. The second advantage I can think of is that Jesus is uh, verbal. Jesus speaks, whereas the universe is silent. People say that the universe is speaking to them in some way, but they generally mean by impressions and you know, hunches or coincidences that happen, that sort of thing. Whereas Jesus has spoken to us in a definitive way. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Jesus is compared to the prophets, right? Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Again, Jesus as creator, but also here Jesus as speaker, as one who speaks to us. You can hear from Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Jesus speaks to us in a real sense through the Holy Spirit that he has sent to us as the Spirit applies the word to us. And so Jesus speaks, whereas the universe does not speak, except in maybe a broad sense as people talk about it with coincidences and that sort of thing. There's a good distinction in Psalm 19. Psalm 19 talks about ways in which uh, God is declared to us. And the first part of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, this is where it says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And it goes on in the first part of this psalm to talk about how all of creation, all of nature, as we might call it, speaks of God. It declares his glory. But then in verse 7, it switches and it says, The law of the Lord, or the word of God, is perfect, reviving the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And so the second half of the psalm, it goes on from there to talk about how the word of God speaks to us in a more specific way. Although all creation can declare the glory of God, the word of God reaches us on a personal level, a level of our own soul, a level of our own knowledge of our own heart, of our own relationship with God. And so that's the second way I think in which Jesus is superior to the universe is that he speaks to us in ways that the universe does not. And this relates to my third point here, and that Jesus is a person, whereas the universe is a force. And so what Machen said in his quote is that Jesus, in his day, he was saying he's not just a support for ethical maxims. He's not just someone to make moral claims by or be an example, but he said he's a genuine person whom a man can love. And by man there, he means in a broad sense, who any human being can love. And we know this. Christians know Jesus and love Jesus. You can have a relationship with Jesus because he is a person. It's not just that he was a person. We talked about this on Sunday. He is a person. He continues to be a person, whereas the very nature of the universe is that it is an impersonal force. The universe would just as soon grind you up and spit you out for whatever purpose it is accomplishing. Uh, because it's not a person. The universe is like a machine or, you know, an impersonal thing, whereas Jesus is a person. And fourth, I would say, and this was probably the most important one, is that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus loves us in that way, that he gave himself for us, uh, that we know the love of Christ in his death for us. And we certainly can't say that about the universe again, because the universe is not a person as Jesus is. But Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so you see in Jesus that he is loving and sacrificial and beneficial to us versus the universe, which by very nature, if the universe is all there is, it would seem to have to be an uncaring and impersonal force. So again, those are the first four things that come to mind. Uh, how is loving Jesus different than the universe? What advantage does Jesus have over the universe? Number one, that he's the creator versus the universe being created. Number two, that he speaks while the universe is silent. Number three, that he's a person and not an impersonal force. And number four, that he's sacrificial and loving and not uncaring. So hopefully that's helpful. A uh, question like that seems like it might carry a lot of uh, assumptions as to what is being gotten at in that question, but hopefully that helps to to address that at least on an initial level there. So one more question, and we'll wrap up here. I mentioned on Sunday, and you can listen to our first podcast a bit about this too, that, of course, there are three 
similar Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, called the Synoptic Gospels. And then there's John, which is very unique. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot of the same stories, sometimes down, as I said, to the same wording. Uh, and yet, they serve unique purposes. And our last question is this. It says, as we read through the Gospel of Luke on our own and follow through with this series, what sort of unique emphases should we be looking at in Luke's Gospel? And I love this question because it assumes that we will be reading along in the Gospel of Luke as we preach our way through it. And this is one of the most valuable disciplines you can add to your life to get more out of church, to make your experience in a church be more fulfilling, is to read ahead the passage that will be preached, to read in review the passage that was preached, to maintain, to talk about it with other people, to keep it as a part of your life. So this question assumes that we are reading the Gospel of Luke for ourselves and not only hearing it preached. And it asks, as we read through the Gospel of Luke, what are some of the unique emphases that we ought to look for? And the first one, and probably the most, uh, the most clear and unique emphasis in the Gospel of Luke is the universal nature of his Gospel. Whereas, uh, like in Matthew, there's a much more like Jewish emphasis, and we talked about this in the last podcast. In Luke, there's a real emphasis on Jesus being the Savior of the world. And that's not to say that's not present in the other Gospels. Of course, it's present in the other Gospels, but Luke really wants to drive it home. And that makes sense with Luke being a Gentile himself, with Luke being part of Paul's ministry to the Gentile world, that he would really want to emphasize that. You'll see, for example, in Luke, he really emphasizes Jesus as the son of man. Uh, you know, Jesus as the son of Adam in that sense. Like Luke traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, whereas Matthew traces gene Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham. And so he has more of that idea that he's the son of Abraham, the son of David, the promised Messiah. And Luke is showing that he's... He's the second Adam. He's the son of man. He's for all people. And so with that emphasis, you see also a real emphasis on what might be called like the upside down kingdom. These uh, reversals here, which those who might be outcasts in uh, the world for a lot of reasons are prized and valued and welcomed by Jesus. And so you'll see in Luke's gospel an emphasis on these marginalized groups uh, Luke in has often been called like the gospel of women, you know, that there's such an emphasis on women. We'll see this in particular in the first two chapters of, you know, with the nativity of Luke from Elizabeth to Mary to Anna in the temple. There's And then on throughout, you see it again pick up, especially around Jesus's resurrection. But a big emphasis on women. There is a repeated emphasis in Luke on the poor. And the poor, as we will see, does not just mean those who have less money, but it's those who were outcast for many reasons, who are not a part of regular and uh, accepted society. You'll see in Luke an emphasis on those who are ethnically marginalized, those of different ethnic groups who had been uh, outside the norms of 
of Israel or wherever because of that. So, again, uh, the universal nature of salvation in Luke and that extending to all these marginalized groups of his day, whether that is women, the poor, or different ethnicities. So that's one of the main things I would say to keep a lookout for. Another main thing, and I mentioned this briefly on Sunday, is just being aware of the general outline of Luke. We'll see in the first few chapters here, like chapters one through three or four, it's the introduction. It's Jesus's birth and how he comes on to the scene. And then after that, it will switch. The first part up through chapter nine is really presenting Jesus, showing how he presents himself to the world, how he introduces himself. It's his ministry in Galilee. And from chapters nine through 19, you have Jesus traveling to Jerusalem. And so it's like this, recounting this road trip, like a travelogue, as Jesus goes from Galilee to Jerusalem. And that forms the middle section of the book and the main section of the book. And then at the end is Jesus in Jerusalem, where he dies for our sins and is raised from the dead. So I I would encourage trying to remember those three sections, from the Galilee ministry to the journey to Jerusalem to his week in Jerusalem. Those are the three main sections, and that's how we're going to break up our preaching series as well uh, in the months and years to come. So know that outline, Galilee to travel to Jerusalem. And then look especially, pay attention to that middle section, those 10 chapters in the middle from 9 through 19, as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. There's a lot of stuff in there that is unique to Luke and you you won't find in Matthew or Mark, and a lot about what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. And so there's a lot of really valuable stuff in there, sandwiched in between the presentation of Jesus and the death of Jesus. That whole middle section is journeying with Jesus. What does it mean to be his disciple? So be aware of the outline. Be especially attentive to that middle portion of it because there's a lot there that is unique to Luke. And there are other things that could be said, like one other thing I'd mention is that uh, pay attention to prayer in Luke. And also as you move past Luke into Acts, remember that Acts is part two of the Gospel of Luke. And so I'd encourage people to read ahead and read in Acts and look for connections between Luke and Acts. And one of the connections that you'll see both in Luke's Gospel and in the book of Acts is that when believers pray, God works. We'll see that even in our passage coming up this Sunday with Zechariah and his prayer in the temple. And when believers pray, God works works in response to their prayers. So look for the theme of prayer. Uh, And then look also, I'd say one more unique thing about Luke is just his emphasis on history. Luke is a good historian. He situates Jesus into his historical world. He gives a lot more time markers than the other gospel writers. He's more deliberate in that sense. And so as you read through it, think through maybe what Luke is doing as he introduces these historical pieces. Why does he include them? Why does he include the different time markers that he does and that sort of thing? So again, the universal nature of salvation in Jesus and that extending to the poor, the outcast, and the marginalized, that's one main theme. The other is knowing that three-part outline from Galilee 
to the journey to Jerusalem, to Jerusalem itself, and paying special attention to the middle and that journey with Jesus and what it means to be his disciple, and then some other things like the role of prayer and Luke's attention to history. I'm sure there are plenty other things that we could say, but I think those are some good starting points for things that we can be looking out for as we read Luke. But again, I would encourage you to be reading Luke uh, this Sunday, Luke 1, 5 through 25 is our passage. Read through that ahead of time. Think through questions that you might have. Come to church ready to engage with the scriptures, having already looked at them, having already let God speak to you through them, and then come and sit under the preaching of that word. It is a radical change for what might happen in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit as God uses that word. So I would encourage you to develop that discipline to be in the scriptures for yourself and not only listening to them when they are preached on Sunday morning. Uh, But again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Hopefully our answers to these two questions were helpful and clear, and also the two that we answered earlier this week. Again, we'll be in Luke 1, 5 through 25 this week, so read through it and start thinking of your questions that you could submit for next week's podcast, and we'll look forward to answering those. All right, God bless, and goodbye.